Hey everyone, welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. My name is Courtney. And I'm Patrick. Welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> I didn't know what else to say. That was a welcome. great opening. Welcome to dessert. People like that. I got really good feedback about that. From my, one person? One person, okay. yes, but I like them, so. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How are you, Pat? Exhausted. How are you? Uh, same, I guess. It's been a day again. It's always a day here, right? Yeah, it's always a day around here. It's always a day around here. A stomach virus is going around our kids' school, and we're just like crossing our toes and fingers and eyeballs, praying that we don't get it. <laughs> but if it happens, like I said, you'll be everybody will be fine except you. You'll be the only one to get it. That's how it always works out. But whatever. That's a mom thing, I guess. Oh, it is. Uh, have you been keeping up with the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard defamation trial? Yeah, she took a shit on his bed. <laughs> is that all you gathered from it? <laughs> I think it's the most ridiculous part of the story. It's hilarious. And the other thing I want to say is that I want Johnny Depp to win and stand up in court and look at her and say, today is the day that you almost caught Captain Jack Sparrow. And then walk out. Oh my gosh. That's epic. And that needs to happen. Yeah. That's... Hilarious. Because she, she pooped on his bed. There's an actual petition out that like over a million people have signed for her to legally change her name to Amber Turd. Are you serious? Dead serious. Well, What if she does? According to Facebook, I should probably check Twitter now that Elon owns it. It's probably more realistic. Twitter? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well... Yeah, the only I've only been keeping up with like the high, the funny highlights of the trial. And I get cracked up every time Johnny Depp is questioned by... Her lawyer. Her lawyer's an idiot. And he is so sarcastic. He speaks my language. He laughs at him. It's just, it's hilarious. Yeah, I saw that clip where he kept objecting for hearsay. <laughs> and Johnny would say something. And before he even finished, he'd be like, hey, you know what? I probably should. That's probably hearsay. Right? Right? I'm learning. I'm, I'm learning. learning. I'm learning. Oh, my God. I just It makes me love Johnny Depp even more. <laughs> I swear. Okay, so Patrick. Courtney. Today, we're going to be covering a smaller case that I had surely never heard about. Maybe you guys have. Uh, I was initially just researching this case not to cover it, just out of my own curiosity because I'm a curious kitten. Because you're a weirdo. Yep. And it sucked me in so deep that I just had to share it with you guys. So... Uh, if you can, guys, please stay tuned until the end because there's a lot to be learned from this unfortunate event. Unfortunate event. Unfortunate event. Good Lord, it's going to be a time. Unfortunate event. So the mom and me just ask that you hang in there with me if you can because something good comes out of this case even though it's not going to seem like it. But let's get to it. Today we are covering the tragic murder of... Tina Fails. And her last name is F-A-E-L-Z, by the way. Fails, I think is how you say that. Does that sound right to you? Sure. I'll go with that. So, on April 5th, 1984, Larry Lovell, a big rig truck driver, was heading south on Interstate 680 to his company's headquarters in San Jose, California. We got another California case, Pat. Oh, go sub figures. Surprise, <laughs> it's California. <laughs> At about 3.05 p.m., 
remember I said this is 1984, so this is a while ago. At 3.05 p.m., he spotted a person in a drainage ditch just off the freeway. He thought about just moving on with his life and not giving it a second thought, but luckily he didn't. He quickly made a U-turn and he parked on the side of the four-lane highway and he got out to investigate. He walked down the embankment. You don't do that shit, Larry. He did, and thank God he did. He walked down the embankment towards the scene when he noticed that the body was covered in blood. That's when he was like, oh, so I'm just going to hop back in my truck and go and get some help. Smart. I would do the same. Now, this was before the days of cell phones, right? So he couldn't exactly (laughs) pick up his cell phone. So he went to the nearby Pleasanton Fairgrounds to use a payphone. Before he could call 911, he noticed a cop named um, Grace Dickinson there. She was monitoring the fairgrounds parking lot, and he explained to her frantically that he believed he had just found a dead body. She radioed Detective uh, Craig Veteran, is his last name. thought that was a cool last name. Who was the first responding officer to the scene. Detective Gary Tolufson met him there. The detectives would describe a gruesome scene. There was a young girl laying dead in a drainage ditch on the side of the highway. She had numerous superficial wounds uh, along with numerous deep stab wounds. Later, it would be determined during her autopsy that she had died from over 40 stab wounds. That's a lot. That's, yeah, that's a few. That's, I mean, you think about it, one stab, that's one. Two, I mean, that's a lot. That's a rage. Whoever killed her was in a rage. The young victim also had defensive wounds on her hands and arms. There wasn't a lot of blood at the scene. Most of the blood had soaked into her clothing, and there was very little blood spatter in the ditch with her. She was wearing a black sweater with a purple stripe underneath, a purple hoodie, and lavender pants. Remember, it was the 80s. (laughs) All of which were soaked in blood. The girl had not been sexually assaulted. No murder weapon was found in the area around her. No other clues were present other than a purse. It was her purse. It was hanging above her in a tree. So over the drainage ditch was a tree that overhung and her purse was draped across that tree. It was immediately taken down and bagged for evidence. And it was noted that no blood appeared on the purse whatsoever. So there was just nothing, no evidence, zero. It was a clean crime scene. It was very easy for police to identify the body, however. Scattered around her were the victim's school papers and a blue binder, all of which had the victim's name written all over them. 14-year-old Foothill High School freshman Tina Fales had just been identified as the victim of a very brutal rage killing, 14 years old. Jeez. Barely even lived yet. Yeah. So let's talk about what happened the day leading up to her murder before we get into who Tina was. On April 5th, 1984, Pleasanton, California, 14-year-old Tina Fales argued with her 8-year-old little half-brother, Drew, about who gets to ride with mom in the front seat on the way to school. (laughs) Our kids do the same, so I can totally relate. Tina had stopped riding the bus just a few weeks before. Um, 
she was having her mom drive her to school instead of taking the bus because a group of girls at her high school were bullying her so badly. Her freshman year so far had just been a really, really tough one. High school sucks. Man. High school just sucks. And especially as a freshman, it's, it's hard. Especially when you don't have a good core group of friends, you know? It's just hard in general. It's hard in general. you're being thrown into a world with like 17, 18, 16-year-olds and, and you're, you're still 14. you're still a child, yeah. yeah. Tina's mom, Shirley, dropped Tina off at the high school first. The plan was for Tina to walk home that day, so there was no need for her mom to pick her up. Now, this day at Foothills High was a little bit more eventful than normal. Uh, Around 10 a.m., a teacher found a freshman boy named um, Steve Carlson locked in the dumpster, um, and he was locked in there by another boy named Todd Smith. When the teacher went to help Steve out of the dumpster, he smelled that Steve had been drinking, and so had Todd and their whole group of friends. But that was pretty normal for that high school, it seems like. Um, I'll talk more about that later. (laughs) That's ridiculous, but okay. (laughs) At lunch that day, a group of five girls cornered Tina, and they threw rocks at her, calling her Tina the Tuna. Like, that's so lame. That's so stupid. And they told her that they were going to beat her ass after school, so she better watch out. Well, Tina's final class ended at 2.20 p.m., and she was supposed to attend uh, after-school detention until 3.15. But Tina never arrived. Her mother never picked her up, nor did she board the school bus. So it was assumed that she walked, which she usually did. And... um, She took her usual shortcut through the tunnel under the freeway. Sounds weird, but we'll get back to that later. (laughs) So let's get into a little bit about who Tina Fails was. Let's get to know Tina. Ron and Shirley Penix had Tina on April 27th, 1969 in Washington State. Unfortunately, Ron was a horrible alcoholic at the time. And Shirley eventually took Tina back to California where she had friends and family. So it was a place that she could have people around her to help raise Tina. Yeah, she got support. Got it. Penix made no attempt to retain any custody of Tina after the move and the divorce. Soon after the divorce, Shirley began to date her high school sweetheart, Steve Fales. The couple soon married, and Steve even adopted Tina when she was four years old, which I think is so cool. The couple then had a son of their own named Drew, Drew Fails, when Tina was six. And she was in heaven. She was a little mama to her half-brother, Drew, from the start. Now, Steve had a good job as a firefighter and worked for the local fire department in Castro Valley, California. That's when that family, because, you know, it was a growing family, they decided to move to Pleasanton, California, into a newly developed subdivision with a brand new school district. By the way, um, Pleasanton, California is a really nice suburban community in the East Bay area, not far from Oakland. And it was voted like the second wealthiest wealthiest city in America, like recently or something like that. It was oh, crazy. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if it was back then or not, but it was a really nice little suburban community. So life for the Fells family was really good when the kids were little. Tina had tons of friends in the neighborhood, and both Tina and Drew were involved in sports when they were younger. Then things started to take a turn. 
Steve fails. Uh, he had an affair with Shirley's brother's wife, so her sister-in-law. Ugh. Steve, I believe, was the one that filed for divorce, and he ended up leaving his wife um, to go and live with Shirley's sister-in-law, with his new girlfriend. So this meant that Shirley had a lot of work to do in order to maintain the lifestyle that she had before because she decided to keep the house. Yeah. And keep the kids where they were. So she worked at a nearby 7-Eleven along with cleaning houses on the side. She was rarely home, which meant that Tina had to take on a lot of responsibility, caring for not only herself, but also her younger brother, Drew. Tina's neighborhood friends started noticing changes in Tina during this time in her life. She was, I think she was like in early middle school. She was dying for attention. She started playing pranks on her friends, both at school and in the neighborhood, which we all do. But Tina took it too far at times. One time, for instance, she was jumping out and scaring a neighborhood boy so badly that he ended up falling off of his bike and he was in the hospital. So she just took it too far. And she started, and this is a quote, she started annoying people quite a bit. This is about the time that Tina started to become the target of bullying as well amongst her peers. As difficult as her social life was becoming, her home life was becoming even more trying. So I think her social life was a direct reflection of her home life. 100%. Well, sure. she's, her mom's never been home. Yeah. And Both dads have left. And she took the divorce really hard. So she's too. dying for the, that's why she's dying for the attention, which caused her to start doing Because that's a screwed up situation with when your dad leaves you for. Your aunt. <laughs> it's even worse because her real dad left. Yeah. Then this guy comes in and adopts her like, screw that dude, I'm going to be your dad. Right. And then he bounced for your aunt. Yeah. It's, holy hell. I know. It's a lot for, and then she's stuck, you know, not stuck, but she's having to endure the responsibility of raising her yeah, half-brother, but- which she gladly did, but. So, Shirley started dating a man named Keith Fitzwater, and He had taken up residence eventually in their home in Pleasanton. He moved in with them. Rumors spread that Keith was abusing Shirley, and family members had even noted bruises all over Shirley's body, but Shirley steadily denied all the allegations. That wasn't the only thing wrong, however. Tina and Keith had a very strained relationship. Keith would spend way too much time alone with Tina in her room. Uh, And friends and family thought that it was just extremely inappropriate, you know? According to Tina's friends, Tina woke up one morning, or she told them that she woke up one morning in her bed to find Keith's hand underneath her blanket on her leg. So Tina ran and told Shirley immediately what had happened, but Shirley apparently didn't believe her at all. Yeah. And Tina was just desperate to have Keith leave their house. And I'm sure it really upset Tina that, you know, her mom didn't believe her. It's just a hard situation for a kid. The fall of 1983 came around and Tina started her freshman year at Foothill High School in Pleasanton. Now, Tina never drank or did any drugs like the rest of the kids did. She also didn't play sports anymore nor was she involved in any school activities. She was just kind of there. She didn't really fit in anywhere. Not even with the bad kids, quote unquote. Like, she just didn't have a place, you know? 
and the bullying just kept getting worse and worse. I would like to mention this. Alcohol and drugs, now this is what, 83, 84? Alcohol and drugs were very prevalent around campus during this time. I just thought this was crazy. In my research, I read that even though it was illegal for minors to buy cigarettes, the school had a designated smoking area. <laughs> because because you could drink and smoke at 18, and a lot of the seniors were 18. But in California there, you, you didn't have to... You didn't have, you had to be over 18 to buy cigarettes, I think. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. You had to be over uh, 18 to buy but you either could still or. still partake. But a lot, well, a lot of your seniors were 18. Oh, okay. So a lot of the seniors are there, so they're just going to say, hey, senior Steve, I'm a junior. Hey, when you go there, can you go ahead and grab a pack of smokes or some beers for me? I just can't even imagine a high school being like, <laughs> I'm going to take a puff break between classes. Well, no, you, an <laughs> official smoking area an right? official like designated smoke where you can hang out with your teacher yeah. smoke a cigarette yeah, 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 and yeah. talk about your math test i was gonna say i think every high school had a smoking area it just wasn't the designated by the school thing there wasn't a plaque <laughs> no <laughs> it was like just everybody knew that's where you went <laughs> so initially like i said earlier tina was a bus rider right but then after she had been um assaulted several times at the bus stop by a group of girls she decided to have Shirley, her mom, drive her to school and she would walk home to just avoid that nasty situation altogether. It got a little hairy. Now, I would like to go into a bit of a description of the crazy way that Tina and most of the other high school kids walked home from school. I can't imagine allowing my kids to do this, but I'm trying to keep an open mind here because this was the 80s. It was a much different time. Pat and I did things in the 80s that we would never allow our kids to do today. <laughs> but, okay, I'm going to pull up a picture so Pat can look at it while I'm talking. It's going to blow y'all's mind. I'll post this too on our Instagram page. So the majority of the kids lived over the interstate, um, interstate 680 from the high school. Tina included. That's not a tunnel. Yeah. It's a drainage pipe. Okay. Not a drainage ditch. It's, like it's a drainage pipe that legit pours into the drainage ditch. That is not a tunnel. That is not big enough for a normal human. That is 100% a drainage It's 8 pipe. to 10 feet high. It's a drainage pipe. Okay. So 680 is the same freeway that the truck driver discovered her body, right? So the school district ran into some issues a few years back because the students were literally crossing the freeway yeah. to get home, right? So they had to put a stop to that. Now, the school district never said, y'all can't go under the freeway. So they found that, and again, y'all have to go on our Instagram and look at this. I don't even know what to call it. A, a tunnel? I'm telling you, it's a, it's a drainage ditch. It's 100% what it is. Okay. Well, it's I a, guess It's a large called. pipe that runs underneath to allow water to pass through. It has since been covered, <laughs> so it's no longer there. But I have pictures of what Tina used to walk through. It was an 8 by 10 foot tube. That ran underneath the freeway, and it ended in a ditch, which is where Tina was found. It was big enough for someone to walk through, like alone. It was dark, spooky. You could hear water running. It was not a safe scenario for kids to be walking through this tube alone. I don't know why in the world anyone would let their kids do that. We did it growing up. Y'all are nuts. So, like I said, I'm including... um, a picture of this on our Instagram. So when you get a chance, go and, and check and it out. And we also didn't grow up down here where you did. We didn't have to worry about things like gators. 
Oh yeah, you get eaten by gators down these you pipes. Go those, you go in one of those pipes down here. That's what I'm gonna say. The bayou around back of our house. If you go in those pipes over there, you are gonna find a gator or a few snakes in there. Oh, yeah. Up north, you didn't really find that crap. Yeah. No, I, I, you couldn't pay me to step foot in that. So now that we have a good idea of who Tina Fails was, and for the most part, what the timeline looked up leading up to her murder, let's get into how the investigation unfolded, Started with um, starting with, unfortunately, notifying the family. So detectives notified Shirley, Tina's mom, around 4 p.m., which is pretty quick because she was found at 3.05. Oh, they knew it was her. Yeah, they knew it was her, and it was right down the road from her neighborhood as well. So they informed Shirley that her daughter had uh, been murdered. She was devastated and was unable to even speak, like, four words for a very long time, which I totally get. In fact, she was too distraught to ID her daughter's body. So she she asked her brother-in-law, Don Reif, to ID Tina down at the morgue. I can't even imagine what she must have been going through. Reif later recalled... They removed the cover over her, and it was a brutal sight, he said. Something that never leaves your mind to see a young girl laying there with wounds on her arms, face, hands, and body. So, Shirley, first thing she did, she called her family, of course. We would do that as well. And she called a Keith Fitzwater, her live-in boyfriend, and they all headed to the residence to console her. Word of the brutal homicide spread like wildfire in the small community. Police Chief Bill Eastman gave reporters a statement because everyone was going crazy. And he said that Fales was indeed stabbed repeatedly with a knife in her backside and face, but didn't disclose how many times she was stabbed so that he didn't scare the community. (laughs) Yeah, because he's saying that and they're probably thinking, you said back, side, face, Okay, three, four, five times maybe. Yeah. That'd be a lot, right? And then, But a 14-year-old girl dead is just going to, yeah, that's terrifying. Now, this investigation wasn't your typical investigation. Remember, there was little to no evidence found at the crime scene. Well, she wasn't murdered there. Mm-hmm. It, she was just fully clothed the whole time in thick clothes. She was dropped. She had on a sweater. She had on, but the, I think her clothes really contained a lot of her blood loss is what happened. Mm. But she was definitely murdered there. Uh, I don't, I don't want to... Not that I'm doing any spoiler alerts, but that's not the direction this is going. Oh, it just doesn't sound... Uh, I'm going to be throwing a lot of names at you, so I'm going to try to go slow. <laughs> I'm going to kind of start at the beginning of the investigation. Investigators started um, where they always start, the family, which is what brings us to our first person of interest, Keith Fitzwater. Remember him, right? Yeah, the boyfriend. Yep. So remember, many of Shirley's family members felt that Keith, Shirley's live-in boyfriend, was abusive to Shirley. And sometimes he spent way too much time alone in Tina's room. And Tina had even complained about him. When Shirley called Keith at work and told him that Tina had been stabbed to death, Keith got his boss to drive him to Shirley's residence. Keith didn't have a car. Um, Before he got out of the car, Keith asked his boss if he could hold on to his knife that he carried with him at all times. Like, when I heard this, I immediately thought, okay, that's the guy. Case closed. No. 
I know. But, um. If he's that fond of Tina, I'm thinking he's like, take my knife. I don't want to do anything stupid. No. But that's a good thought. When <laughs> well, that's what's going through my head. When I'm thinking about one of my kids. I'm like, here, take, yeah. take all my guns and my knives because <laughs> okay. I don't want to have anything on me when this happens. No, I got you. I got you. When investigators asked Keith why he had his boss hold his knife for him, Keith said, I knew how Tina was murdered and I thought it would be inappropriate for me to carry a knife into the home after all that. So fair enough, I guess, right? I mean, that's a legit, that's a very good reason. Now, remember, he touched Tina, so we don't like him, but yeah. doesn't necessarily make him a murderer. You know? No, 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 no. So Keith remained under suspicion until it was confirmed that he was indeed clocked in at work during the time that the murder had been committed. Not only was he clocked in, but co-workers had seen and interacted with him all during that day. So, he was cleared. He was an asshole, but he didn't kill anyone that day. I didn't peg him as a killer. A pedophile maybe, but a killer, I don't know. Although Keith was cleared, investigators caught wind that Keith had some shady acquaintances who had even rented a room from Shirley at her residence. If you, did I mention earlier that Shirley, for extra money, was renting out rooms? Nope. No, okay. Well, she had been playing with the idea of renting out rooms. And she only did it to one or two people. Yeah, yeah, I can see uh, that. Just for extra money. People shit, people Airbnb or freaking rooms they live Nowadays, in the house. yeah. But, um, yeah, so this is going to bring us to our second suspect. On March uh, 17th, 1984... Less, less than a month before Tina's murder, Keith's friend, John Anderson, he was an ex-Army vet of the Vietnam War and an ex-inmate at the Santa Rita Jail, was staying with the family, renting out an extra bedroom at Shirley's house. She needed some extra cash, so it works. His nickname was Recon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not sure why. I'm uh, sure there's a good story. He was probably recon or did recon in Vietnam, and that's where he came from. He was a bad dude, though. We don't like him. It was said that on that evening, John got uh, horribly drunk on the evening of March 17th. He got horribly drunk. He was drinking vodka all day long and well into the evening. And during the night, he kept going into Tina's room and scaring her. Now... That's all the research told me. I'm not sure if he ever tried anything with Tina or not, but it was said that he did, in fact, at least scare her. So we know that. Finally, Shirley would ask John to leave between 8 and 9 a.m., where he left. He got all of his stuff, and he walked down to the corner. It was a little breakfast place called the Corner House and ate breakfast. Now, this maybe would give John motive to kill Tina, police thought you know she got him kicked out right mm -hmm. but as they dug deeper it was said that the day after the murder john was seen cleaning his knife in public in a public restroom so that's pretty shady business like okay he's looking good so far okay i'm on board so the police asked john to come down to the station for questioning now john didn't own a car so he asked police, yeah, I'll come down for questioning, but can I have a ride? This was a problem because the day of the murder, John had clocked in to work at 3.45 p.m., which means he would have had to kill Tina between 3 and 3.15, cleaned himself up, take public transportation a whole hour away to where he worked, 
which just isn't possible. Nope. Unless he time traveled. So, although John Anderson is shady and a piece of crap, he's not the murderer of no, Tina Fowles for sure. So, guess we next him. By this time, the community was so up in arms over Tina's murder. Uh, rumors about the trucker who Tina, who found Tina initially, remember? Mm-hmm. That started to spread. Could he have done it and reported her body to police to avoid suspicion? It was a possibility. So John Lovell was indeed questioned and his background was looked into, but it turns out he was just a good concerned citizen who couldn't have logistically committed the crime. So unfortunately, this was another dead end for the investigation. I mean, that dude was just doing a good thing. He was just doing a good thing. But the town's so up in arms because it's such a small little proper town. Yeah, they're I up think, in arms. They're like ready to like throw. They just want to solve this shit. Well, to give you an scared. idea, Pleasanton before Tina, before Tina's murder, the last murder this town had had was during the Vietnam War. So, and that wasn't a child. Yeah, yeah, it was probably 15, 10, 15 <laughs> yeah. years prior to that. So, yeah, so it's that's what crazy. I'm saying. The town is up in arms. They are like ready. They want the killer found because they're all they terrified. They're yeah. terrified. Because this is the first murder they had, and this is clearly not like a bar fight drunk or something, or a DUI. You no, know this is mean? a rage This was like a murder. So they're losing their minds, like, who the fuck did this shit? Because no one feels safe right now. Well, yeah, I would be, imagine all the parents sending their kids to school, like, uh, you're not going to school today. They used to walk. And you're not walking. <laughs> but they all walked, because back then, even when we were kids, even if both parents were working, you, you walked or rode the bus. I mean, I walked to and from school some a lot when we were uh, in elementary school. I so. I was made into the true crime monster I am. <laughs> I have my, a mama that's a lot like me. A couple blocks to the elementary. Yeah, that's school. true. Mine was different. When I was in high school, it was like a mile walk, but it was, yeah. it was high school. Yeah, I, mean, I was that's fourteen, true. fifteen, sixteen. So. Okay, so for a time, police went to questioning the students at Foothill High, where. Word got back to them that a group of students had gathered at the top of one of the neighborhood houses that overlooked where Tina was found. Yeah. They gathered at the top of that house to kind of watch the police work the crime scene the day of the murder. No big deal. I I think. Small town. Yeah, kids are bored. exactly. It was noted that the home belonged to Steve Carlson. Um, a freshman kid whose parents were not home that day. You may remember Steve as the kid who got locked in the school dumpster earlier that day. Oh, <laughs> that was drunk. a drunk kid in the school dumpster. <laughs> Anyways, a number of kids had arrived um, to skip school, drink, and do drugs there, which was, again, very normal behavior, nothing out of the ordinary. They did that at Steve's house that day. Yeah. Cops are like, no, those kids are <laughs> fucked up again. Yeah. That's normal. Let's, so, just, let's just leave them be. Although that makes these kids little assholes, it doesn't necessarily make any of them murderers. Plus, they all had alibis. They were all questioned. And there was just no evidence to tie any of these people at the house to Tina and her murder. So, okay, Tina was murdered on April 5th. Well, five days later... A 16-year-old girl was walking home from a bus stop in Felton, which is eight miles away from where Tina was murdered. She walked over a covered bridge when a two-door Oldsmobile pulled up and stopped a short distance in front of her. A white male exited the vehicle. He was drinking a beer. 
As she walked towards him cautiously, not knowing what he was doing, he sat his beard down on the the ground, (laughs) darted at her, and grabbed her, putting his hand over her nose and mouth, telling her not to scream or he would kill her. The young man tried to unzip her white work shirt. He actually did unzip her white work shirt and then attempted to pull her into the nearby brush. Luckily, the girl slipped totally out of her shirt and she was able to get away, which is so smart. She did leave behind her jacket and her purse. So she ran home and she called 911 and she returned to the area with police to look for the suspect, who of course was long gone. But police did find his Michelob Ultra can (laughs) and was able to send it off for Fingerprint testing. Yeah, Michelob Ultra, well, I just want to point this out. It yeah. wasn't like the trendy beer that it is now no. in 1984, 85. It was like... I didn't even know they had it back then. That was like Schlitz or Pabst Blue Ribbon back then. Oh, really? I didn't or know that. Like, you know, the quarter champagne of beer. It was like that. Yeah, true. All the bush, chicks the drink Michelob light, you know now. I mean? Yeah, that's true. So on April 11th, I think this is pretty badass. Don't recommend her behavior, but pretty badass. On April 11th, the 16-year-old victim took matters into her own hands, which, again, I do not recommend. She went and located the suspect herself. She's like, police, is, they're not doing a lot, so I'm going to go find this little... Look, this dude. Yeah, exactly. I got something for his ass. Yeah, exactly. So she did. She went um, to Henry State Park, and she saw him. She was smart. She didn't approach him, but she jotted down his license plate number, and she took it to police. On April 23rd, the vehicle was stopped by a Scotts Valley police officer, and they determined that this was their um, attempted rape suspect. Yep. He was identified as 23-year-old Walter Nyman. Although Nyman said he had nothing to do with the attempted rape, his fingerprints matched those that were on the beer bottle at the scene, and he was arrested. Because of the similarities in the case... Uh, and Tina's case, both being a roadside assault and basically a week apart, you know, in a town that doesn't have this kind of stuff, Nyman became a major person of interest. Yeah, no shit. It was determined that Nyman was living in Pleasanton at his grandmother's house. Because remember, this was in Felton. Yeah, it's eight miles away. Which is eight miles away, yeah. yeah. So he was living in Pleasanton at his grandmother's house the day Tina Fails was murdered. In addition, Nyman's grandmother said that he was visibly upset the day of her murder about how his life was going. So, hmm. hmm. Now, as damning as this all is, it's all circumstantial, yeah, it's, unfortunately. It, point, it points to him, but it doesn't say he did it. It just draws your attention. There to wasn't nearly enough evidence to neither charge nor eliminate Nyman. In I don't think there's enough evidence to, like, search his house or anything at this point. No, no. So he will, for now, remain just a person of oh, he's, interest. He's person of interest number one on the oh, radar. Yeah, I'm gonna one hundred percent right now. And and do that. Do what Pat's doing right now while you're listening to this. Like, kind of jot down who you think is numero uno. Right now, he's number one because I mean, you, it's clear. It's obvious. Yeah. Oh, okay. This this gets me every time. So Monday, April 9th, nineteen eighty four. A memorial was held at Foothill High School in memory of Tina. Tina's friend, um, Kim Scola, spoke at the assembly how she became, and talking about how she became friends with Tina and the impact that Tina had made on her life. She said, and I quote, We all miss you. 
I'm sure you're finally in a better world today where the skies are always blue. It was then announced that the school would be planting a lilac tree in Tina's honor so that every year when it bloomed around the time of her death, she would be remembered, which I thought was very sweet. Yeah. And then they they played her favorite song over the PA, the loudspeaker, which was Stevie Nicks' Stop Dragging My Heart Around. Okay. Good choice. Okay. Good choice, Tina. Unfortunately, this is going to show you how shitty the student body was. The student body at that school just sucked. And I'm sorry if that sounds insensitive, but it's just a fact. Some idiot then thought it would be hilarious to blast over the PA system, the loudspeaker of the song, Another One Bites the Dust by Queen, nice. during her memorial. Can you believe that? Uh, I, no, I don't want that kid's ass, dude. Jesus. Like, oh my God. <laughs> I don't know. I hope he was so punished or whoever did that. That's just, oh. Then the day of Tina's funeral came. It was an open casket and many of the student body was present. So that's good. Tina's mother opted to have uh, Tina cremated and her ashes were scattered at Yosemite National Park underneath a tree that faces a beautiful waterfall. There's a picture that I'm going to post on IG of um, Shirley, Drew, and their father at the park scattering the ashes. So I'll post that. Make sure you check it out. Their father is Keith? No, it's Steve Fails. Tina always thought of him. Oh, okay. So he showed up. Mm -hmm. He did. Yeah, he did show up. I didn't go too far into it just for time's sake or we would be here for forever. But yeah, he, he did show back up. Tina stayed stay in touch with him, and he was he was present, you know? Ish, yeah. He just did a shitty thing. Yeah. He had an affair. And left. For, and left. For that affair. For that affair, yeah. So, two weeks after the funeral, Tina's picture was no longer in the paper anymore. There was just no more news to report, you know? There was no evidence to follow up on, but it definitely wouldn't stay that way for long. So, the year before Tina's murder... On December 2nd, 1983, 14-year-old Kelly Jean Poppleton had been found beaten, stabbed, and suffocated in a wooden area near Pleasanton. Not in Pleasanton, but it was called a Sunall, and it's around there. Of course, we know Tina's body would be found in the spring of 1984, so they're pretty much back-to-back. Mm-hmm. But this is where things start to get a bit odd. On April 25th of the same month that Tina was killed, same year, 18-year-old Julie A. Connell was found stabbed to death in um, Palomares Canyon outside Castro Valley, which is about 15 miles from Pleasanton. Then on November 28th of that year, 18-year-old Lisa Monzo was reported missing in Hayward, She was last, which is also near Pleasanton. She was last seen alive walking the same interstate that Tina was near. Her body was found four days later, strangled. So, serial killer? Like, this? that's what I'm thinking. That Sounds like one of those highway killers. Hi, yeah, one of those freeway killers. That's definitely my immediate thought. And according to the Oakland Tribune, that was the thought of the police in all the surrounding areas because a task force was created to find a connection between the five missing girls. It's too... Or murdered girls. Yeah, I mean, it's just too... 
much of a red flag that and you had for an this, area that hadn't had yeah, you any, haven't had any murders in this area for years, and all yeah, of a sudden it's like decades. bam, bam, bam. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a murderer. Mm-hmm. Who was the first one? The year before her. Was that a murder? Uh, no, that was a murder. Yeah, was, so you have that murder. Then you have another Kelly. murder, mm-hmm. which was Tina. Then mm-hmm. you have the attempted rape, mm-hmm. and then now you're finding another one in November. The rest April, are, and then the rest November. are murders. Yeah. So I mean, you have one attempted rape and five murders or yep. four murders. Yeah, all in the same little strip of the highway. So a task force was formed. Hell yeah! I think they got a serial killer. But unfortunately, the task force didn't rustle up many suspects at the time. Remember, this is the 80s. <laughs> Not a lot to go on back then, you know, except blood type and fingerprints. Stuff yeah. Like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you have a body, and if you don't have a knife yeah. or a person with a knife in their hand, you're like, mm, I don't know. Exactly. Then more tragedy struck when 13 year old Eileen Mischelhoff went missing walking home from uh, Wells Middle School in nearby Dublin. Uh, Wells Middle School is where Tina went to middle school. Okay. And also, I believe, Kelly. So, if you're keeping track, uh, Wells Middle School, this would be the third girl in eight years who attended there that was now in the headlines that was either dead or missing. Just unheard of. Yeah, first Kelly Poppleton and then Tina Fails. Now Eileen. So, Eileen, she took a popular shortcut home, as many of her peers did. Sounds familiar. And she even went through a ditch that ran through a park, eerily similar to Tina's route. And she was last seen alive outside a restaurant called Foster's Freeze. And never seen again. Mm. Unfortunately, no other leads in any of these cases would happen for another 12 years. 12 years. They have nothing to go on. to advances in DNA technology. And they're probably looking at the wrong things. You know, to me, one thing I'm looking at is college. I'm looking at <clears> classmates. <throat> Right. right now, right now, we were looking for a serial killer, right? Right. Police are looking all around the area for anything that attaches. Probably, you know. If convicts. you hear my big water jug, I'm sorry. Yeah. That last part points me to like a, a student that went to school with them, or they know. Because yeah. you're talking about three girls from the same middle school. They okay. attended that middle school in the last eight years. All three of these girls, which all were basically in the high school age, are now missing or dead. So like. There is a classmate, top of my mind, I'm looking for a classmate because they know these girls. And these are not just like, I slit your throat and killed you. I stabbed you 48 times. Right. You know what I mean? Like, And it's all in the same places, the same stuff. Like, you can't tell me this is not a classmate. Okay. Well, let's see. Okay. You I'm just saying, it does, it's, it's too freaking coincidental. Okay, so the family of Lisa Ann Monzo was the first to get answers. New DNA technology was used to charge and convict Michael Ide for her murder. Ide was already in prison serving a life sentence in Washington State for the rape and murder of an elderly woman. On November 6, 1996, a jury found Ide guilty of the rape and murder of Monzo. In the years leading up to the trial, Pleasanton police looked for any clues leaking Ide to Tina Fales. The most chilling aspect was a photo provided by Shirley Fields. It was a photo of her, her, her son Drew, so Tina's half-brother, and a man who looked identical to Ide. 
Detective Tollefson was certain that this was I, but it turned out to just be a friend of the family on Steve Field's side. A man who was, in fact, not Michael Lydon. So, another dead end for the Tina Fails case. Although, they could not totally rule out Michael, however. So, keep Michael in mind. Keep all well, these that, people in mind. All these murders to them about. are connected right now. So, if yeah. he's guilty of one 100%, he's like... 70% guilty in their minds right so, now. So, so far we have Michael Ide and Walter Nyram as people of interest, mm-hmm. right? They're, yep. They're front. In 2007, <laughs> that's doesn't seem like too long ago, does it? Mm-mm. The family the family of Julie Connell became the next to get answers on what happened to their daughter. Using DNA, a jury convicted Robert Rhodes of tying up slashing and stabbing and raping Julie in 1984. He was already on death row for the 1996 kidnap, torture, rape, and murder of eight-year-old Michael Lyons. He was an absolute monster. It wouldn't have been him. Once again, Pleasanton police tried desperately to find anything to tie Rhodes to Tina, but there was just nothing concrete enough for a convention conviction so let's just keep him as a person yeah, it's, not him. it's not him well no he it's not him and i'll tell you why mm-hmm. Hit on it real quick he's been found guilty for two death rape and murders two rapes and murders of- and tina wasn't raped exactly he doesn't not rape he's a sexual killer and he kills the evidence okay that's true she wasn't raped <clears throat> wasn't him in october of 2008 a familiar name resurfaced hmm. walter nyram a fellow inmate of Nyram's claimed that Nyram was in fact responsible for not only the Tina Fales murder, but also the murder of Eileen Mischelhoff. And you have to remember, he's in prison for the attempted rape. Yeah, yeah, he's in jail for yeah, he's attempted in jail. rape. He was, crushed, he was questioned directly, and he denied it. Still, no solid evidence <laughs> tied him to either of the girls' murder, but nothing else said that he wasn't involved. He was in the area. Yes, know? but to me... He's a rapist. She wasn't raped. The rape thing is a key factor for me here with all We don't know about Eileen, though, because she was missing. No, I know. I'm just saying with all the other ones so far, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm taking note. I'm just wanting to put it out there. I'm taking note of the sexual assault aspect Mm -hmm. of it because all the other ones have that aspect. She didn't, which tells me it's completely different. Right. So it tells me anybody that has a sexual assault history or charge or something going on against them, it's not going to be them. Because she was, they didn't even attempt that with her. I'm very excited about this next part. Okay. Okay, you can't peek though, you promise? Yeah, I promise. Okay. So a whopping 24 years went by after Tina's murder. 24. For 24 years, Shirley and Drew Fails and their family had to live without having any justice for Tina. Yeah, I mean, shit, Drew's like 35. At this <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's an adult now. Then along came Dana Savage. Dana Savage had been a beat cop in the Pleasanton Police Department in the 90s. And she was then reassigned to detective in 2004. In 2008, Dana became pregnant with her first child. And she could, with that pregnancy, not do field work. So... She was assigned to desk work, and she worked cold cases. And thank God she did, because she is one badass bitch. She wholly devoted herself to the Fails case. Dana would say, 
and this is a quote, what really got me feeling for this girl was when I saw the autopsy photos. She went on to say that the number of leads and suspects they had in the case just blew her away, which I have to agree. Like, never in an unsolved case have I <laughs> seen so many suspects. Yeah, and I mean, these are all very high person of interest if, yeah. not, if nothing else, you know what I mean? Yeah, and convicted people. All suspects. Yeah, I mean, back to my theories, I don't think it's them because there's no sexual assault aspect to it. But definitely, there's one dude's girthy of killing two kids. Like, come on. Mm, yeah, that's true. You're still a suspect in their book. So Dana decided to look, you know what, let's just look at cold, hard evidence. The only evidence she felt that she had in Tina's case was her purse. Remember the one that was tossed up on the tree? It almost sounded like it was placed. Mm. So you may remember that it was hanging in a tree over Tina's body in the ditch. Yeah. It was obvious to Savage that the killer had to have been the last one to touch Tina's purse. Yeah, had to have placed it there. Tina would, wouldn't have flung her own purse up, right? What she thought, and this is her theory, I don't have this in my notes, I don't want to lose my place, but her theory was that Tina tried to fight him off with her purse. He grabbed it and threw it up. Like... Like grabbed it and tossed it in the tree. That was one of her theories. We don't know what happened. I'm just guessing. Yeah. That and she was guessing. I mean, that, that's not my thought. I couldn't have thought that. I'm not that smart. Well, they could have could have been a marker. Like they wanted her to be found. True, true, true. Very true. So now there was no blood on the purse visible to the naked eye, but okay. the killer was bound to have cut himself at some point. During the murder, because this was a awful, heinous attack, and it was bloody, and knives slip, especially when your hands are wet, and he was bound to have cut himself at some degree during this attack. So, science had progressed enough by 2008 that a minute blood spatter could be detected. Yeah, I was going to say, that's like almost like a Hail Mary, like she was like... This is definitely a Hail Mary because looking at the purse, I've seen the purse. I'll post a picture of the purse. There's nothing on the purse. I'm just saying, even the blood spider, you're basing it off a theory that he mm-hmm. couldn't hold the knife in his hand and it somehow got cut. Uh, it's a him. Hail Mary. We've tried everything else. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, yeah. it's clearly a Hail Mary. That's it. Because I'm sitting here thinking, if I'm There's stabbing no somebody, there's no fingerprints much, on it. It's still a pretty good chance that I'm holding on to this blade the entire time. So Savage sent the purse. They didn't have the technology there. Oh. Obviously. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> so Savage sent crime the purse off to FBI in Quantico, Virginia for yeah. blood analysis. The best crime lab there is. I am sad to report that it would be two years before she would receive the results. Real life is not CSI. You don't just send it in and get it back overnight. Especially That's in a case, especially on a low profile case, it's a cold case. It's exactly. been open for 24 years. They have like, priority. That is on the bottom of their food chain. So now. Savage was really confident that it was either Nyram or Rhodes. And I think that she she was like you. And I don't know. I, I I think, I think, we'll see. We'll see. So let's see if she was right. In August of 2010, the results were in. Four tiny stains were detected on the purse. Presumptive blood tests were performed on all four stains and all came back positive, which means all were blood. They were all blood. Yeah. DNA was pulled from each of the blood stains. This is how it all works in the crime lab. Three of the stains belonged to Tina. Talk about a Hail Mary. Three of the four blood Three out stains. Of four. One doesn't. One doesn't. 
What is your killer? The fourth stain belonged to a male who just happened to already have his DNA entered into the system, a database known as CODIS. Do you want to know who that man is? I do. Steve Carlson, the idiot kid who got himself locked in the dumpster the day of Tina's murder. The kid whose house served as a gathering place for... This is the kid we were laughing at in the beginning. For everyone to watch the police work Tina's crime scene after her body was found. Savage was shocked. What the fuck? Steve Carlson had been provided an alibi along with his peers who were also questioned in Tina's case. Plus... If Steve committed this crime, he was only 14, sorry, 15 years old at the time. And never was it thought that a child could have done something this evil pudding. Yeah, clearly they haven't paid attention to history, but okay. This was a vicious attack and murder. So let's get to know Steve Carlson. And let's see if he was born evil pudding or made into evil pudding. Because to commit a crime like that, you are in fact evil pudding. <laughs> He's not a good dude. That's for so, damn sure. who is Steve Carlson? Douchebag. So, Steve John Carlson was born on December 29th, 1967 in Bakersfield, California. Two parents, John and Sandra. He was the second of four kids. The oldest was Tanya, who was four years older than Steve. And the youngest of his siblings were twins, Richard and Amy. Now, we already aren't off to a good start because John and Sandra apparently only wanted one kid, Tanya. And everybody else was an accident. Imagine oh. having twins as an accident. That's like a super <laughs> That's like, oh, we want to have another kid. Oh, we're having two. Son of a biscuit. All right. Oh, my God. So the the Carlsons, I want to say Carlton, like Fresh Prince. The Carlsons moved to Pleasanton midway through 1980 to 1981 school year. And they bought a home in uh, Tina's neighborhood on Lemonwood Drive. So him and Tina were neighbors. Uh Uh-huh. Steve made friends with other boys in the neighborhood who instantly saw that he was a bit different. A little different. I, I laugh at this. Paddle, paddle will tell you why. According to Steve's older sister, Tanya said, in hindsight, only in hindsight, it was so obvious that Steve had severe ADHD and he just, it wasn't around where no one could help him back then. Okay. <laughs> Steve doesn't just have ADHD, Tanya. <laughs> I know ADHD was not a diagnosis back in the 80s. And no, I'm sure but it was it such helped, a but it was but such a negative stigma. It was looked at yeah. like this is anything that was like undiagnosed yeah. and you were just a bad person, you had ADHD. I myself have ADHD and my I have two kids that have ADHD, so mm, and we don't kill people themselves, so I think I don't think that's it, Tanya. But Y'all make me want to sleep with my gun tonight, bringing all that up. (laughs) You've been good thus far. (laughs) Barely. (laughs) She said, Tanya would say, Steve was a really difficult child. He was always getting into a lot of trouble. No social skills and very annoying, she said. Which 
Same. But that doesn't make us murderers that necessarily. That makes you a child. I'm just shit. Yeah. Or Courtney is an adult. <laughs> no, it's like, I don't know how many people have kids that aren't ever annoyed with their kids, but you you are saints if you're not. I'm just saying. Well, this is his sister saying that. Just wanted to clarify that. Oh, yeah. It's his older sister. Oh, sister's hating me. Yeah, oh, he's um, annoying as hell. Steve, <laughs> Steve never stuck with anything. He try, Which us with ADHD do, right? We try things for a while and then it's like, oh, I gotta go on to the next thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what right. we do. Steve, yeah, never stuck with anything. He tried baseball in, in, in middle school for a time. But after being hit with pitch and getting made fun of, he never played again. One of Steve's childhood friends recalled how different and odd Steve was as a preteen. This is where I'm going to venture out and say it's not ADHD. There was one time that all of him, Steve, and a group of friends were at the creek one day. And Steve caught a frog, as kids do. And he then just dropped it on the ground, stomped on it, and killed it. Ooh. And his friends were like, why did you do that? He's like, just because. <laughs> That's not ADHD. <laughs> That's not, yeah. That's psychopathy. But anyway. That's how all our serial killers start. So as he got older, he just got worse. Him and his group of friends... Um, started drinking and smoking weed at a very early age. And I know that tons of kids do that. And well, he probably did it to fit in. And then once he started doing it, it tr- I think it triggered. So I think he had something loose in his brain and that just Actually, really screwed it up. I think it. <clears throat> or brought out the real him. Numbed him. And no, I think, I think it's kind of the opposite. I think this dude was a walking mess and he kept drinking and doing drugs because it kind of, like contained him? Or, oh no, we're or, talking like elementary school. I, and don't give him a lot of credit yet. Oh. Yeah, we're at like young age. Like probably trying 10, to be 11. Cool. Probably trying to be cool then. Uh, that's very early. I thought it was going to become numbing to his like mental So state. When, when he started middle school, um, yeah, that's when he kind of started to prefer. Be- it wasn't as bad as high school, but... I think that drinking really hit him okay. and his behavior just intensified. Like whatever was there intensified and he earned the name creepy Carlson. And he, he was really perverted from a young age. And I think that this just gave him like that. Well, you're going to lose Dutch your, courage. You're right? going to say you're going to lose your inhibitions. You're going to lose, you're going to get that liquid courage and want to do those things. Yeah. Of course. But can you just sit back and imagine a middle schooler who regularly drinks, like just <laughs> kid gets out of like U S history one. We're laughing. Cause we're uncomfortable. Goes to PE <laughs> walks home. I need a Bud Light. <laughs> cracks open the scotch. Like, Walks, opens the fridge, he's like, Mom, we're out of fucking beer. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Mom's like, well, my bad, let me go get a case from the garage. Okay, it's not funny. Stop. <laughs> Holy hell. It's funny. It's just messed up. It's, it, we're uncomfortable. That's why we're laughing. So one girl, a neighbor of Tina and Stevens, named Rochelle Williams, recalled one day how Steve was in her house with a group of friends. Rochelle's sister was in the shower upstairs. Unbeknownst to Rochelle, Steve snuck upstairs into the bathroom and ripped open the shower curtain. Her sister screamed while Steve just stood there and laughed hysterically. Not moving. Just 
stood there and stared and laughed. He was, of course, kicked out of the house and was asked never to return, of course. But that was like the start of it. Steve's home life was also chaotic, as you can imagine. Sandra Carlson was said to have been super strict regarding like chores and the like. But at the same time, the house was disgusting. Tons of rabbits and pets ran loose, pooping everywhere. Uh. But like they couldn't leave unless the house was clean. You know what I mean? But the, but the house was never clean. I don't know. It was just, oh, sorry, I hit my mic. No, it's but it was just like, like a really screwed up situation. I don't know if his parents were drinkers, but it was probably like until like the food pots Maybe. that they need or the, or the glasses and the booze they need. Well, I don't know. Certain things had to be clean, obviously. I also don't believe that, this is from my research, I don't believe that the kids were allowed any new clothes that often because the neighborhood would donate clothes to the Carlson kids. And they were fairly new items in good condition. But then the neighbors would see all the Carlson kids walking around wearing the donated items, but they were destroyed. So what they thought was happening was that Sandra, Steve's mother, would ruin the clothes on purpose before passing them on to the kids. Like, if that's the case, that is so screwed up. That's fucking, that's fucked up. That is so screwed up. Like, not only are people giving me I'm shit not, for and my by kids, the way, I'm not paying for it. I'm not saying, this was just speculated amongst several of the neighborhoods back in the day when they were adults saying makes sense. we always thought that she had to have been up to something so i'm just throwing it out there i don't the ones donating you know what kind of stuff you're donating to the family so sandra if you're still alive you and you're somehow listening to the podcast i'm not saying it's fact i'm just saying that that info was out there i'll say in fact you contributed to this he said that i did <laughs> so amy remember amy steve's little sister she was amy and richie were Twins. Twins. Yeah. So Amy, Steve's little sister, was made to keep, and this is sad, uh, an embarrassingly, this was a quote, an embarrassingly short haircut and was only allowed to wear one pair of leggings with holes in them. The leggings were held together at the seams with safety pins. Where was CPS? Why didn't anybody call CPS? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just, it's dumbfounding. Nowadays, you fart in front of your kid and they call CPS. Exactly. On so true. So as strict and nonsensical as Steve's parents were, they were always out, like you said, gallivanting around and drinking, leaving the okay. kids to run wild. Yeah, so that all their money went to the two of them, their selfishness and their alcohol. Right. Nothing else mattered to anybody else. Who, nobody even gave a crap about the kids. Mm-hmm. So... We are going to pause for a breaky poo, and we will meet you right back here soon. In the fall of 1983, Steve went to Foothill High School. He showed brief potential by very brief, probably <laughs> very brief. Oh, that's pretty good. By trying out and making, he made it the freshman football team. He probably got tackled one time, cried like a little bitch, and quit. <laughs> My next line. <laughs> However, he quit before the first game. <laughs> <laughs> he probably got hit one time and was like, do it. This is funny. According to his friend Todd Smith, Steve only wanted to play football to get laid. And Todd Smith also went on to say that Steve just sucked. <laughs> football like sucked. And again, the comments we're making are not as 
kid. No, a kid. I'm, not, I'm laughing at. I'm not trying to be mean to. Yeah, child, I'm laughing at him. For he's who also he a murderer. That's what I'm saying. For who he became, I'm not laughing at the kid at his time. He was going through a lot. I'm laughing at yeah. the fact that. But also, this ha-ha, same so year, he murdered Tina. So it's like, wow, wow. Okay, so Steve's freshman year of high school, it marks the year that he started doing crank, which is I had to actually Google what crank was. I didn't know. Meth. It's low purity, purity crystal meth. Yeah. So now the weed and alcohol had intensified his creepy behavior in middle school, as we saw. I'm sure you can imagine what adding meth into the mix did for Steve. Oh, he's going to be crazy. (laughs) His efforts to get laid started to become. You ever been attacked by a naked person on meth? I have. It's not fun. It's not fun. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you that story later. How am I supposed to do the rest of this? (laughs) I'm just saying, you bring up Crank. By the way, changing his behavior. For those of you who are new here, my husband was a cop. We're not just weird. (laughs) Well, well, we are weird, but. Yeah, but there's a reason why that all happened. It Wait, babe, a, was that when you were a cop? Yeah. Okay, good, thank God. <laughs> and I have a lot of friends that have had similar <laughs> stories when they've dealt with people on meth. <laughs> the way that you were sitting too just looked at me like... <laughs> oh my God. That's why we can start videoing these. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> So I'm sure you can imagine what adding meth into the mix did for Steve. His efforts to get laid started uh, to become more and more forceful that year. Steve attempted to rape a fellow classmate on her way home from school. Luckily, her little sister arrived and beat his ass with... (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah, the little sister, like, little badass bitch elementary school kid. She was like, get off my sister! And started pounding Steve with her backpack. Oh, my god! She caused such a scene. I think that's what it is. I think she caused more of a scene. It probably scared him. <laughs> Plus, she gave me the giggles, so everything's funny now. I know. So, uh, Steve ran off, thank God. So, go, little sister. He also... It's a badass little sister, man. <laughs> get off my sister! Just beating him with a backpack. Adorable. I love it. He also attempted to rape one of his little brother's friends. Yeah. So uh, whether or not he succeeded, that's up in the air. Who knows? They just know he attempted it. Yeah. Uh, Now, if you remember, he was in the same grade and the same high school as Tina, right? Yeah, he's a freshman in the same year she was. Yeah. So on the day of her murder, his friends provided him an alibi but their stories would later change over the years, according to his friends. They were all so drugged up at that time that it was really hard for any of them to recall exactly where Steve was yeah, they probably, during the time of the murder. They probably came up with a story where they were all fucked up together and then told the story. And the cops let it at that. And then over the years, like, damn, what did I even tell them? I would venture to... I, I usually call BS on a lot of this stuff, but... From what I've read about their lifestyle, I've tried to condense it, you know, to fit yeah. into this episode, but I totally 110% believe. They were involved? No. 
that no one remembers where Steve was. And they just said to the best of their ability, like... He was always with us. We were always... Wait, yo, he was there. Yeah, for sure, man, he was there. We were always fucked up with Steve. Yeah, I don't think that... That makes sense, too. No, I don't think that they were involved. I really don't. Well, that makes sense, too. If they're they're that drunk and drugged up all the time, they're like, Steve's always with us, so Steve was with us because we were fucked up. Yeah. I mean... They just told you what drugs they thought they were on. He probably was there getting fucked up with him, and he probably snuck off at some point or something. Absolutely. So, what I'd like to talk about now is Steve's behavior after Tina's murder, because it's going to blow your mind. At a party just two days after Tina's murder, which this small town, I don't know why they would hold a party. Kids might. That's how they cope. Yeah. Steve got wasted. And he was bragging about stabbing her. He would go on to do this numerous times throughout the years. Mm. This got the rumor mill going, as you can imagine. Even a teacher at school felt inclined to ask Steve, point blank, if he had anything to do with Tina's murder. To which Steve responded, and I quote, only God knows. Okay, Tupac. (laughs) When God can judge me, no. No, Stephen. Stephen. Steve. Every time I hear that name, Stephen, I think of that. Stephen. That, y'all know what we're talking about. Is that meme from a while back? What was it? In the Starbucks. Oh, like on it was like, IG, when I post all these pictures, the last one I'm going to post is Stephen. Yeah, it's that Stephen. little chihuahua with the underbite. It's Stephen. What was it? P F F F T. No, is it Stephen with a P H? And they spoke. They spelled it like. Is it Stephen with the P H? Yes. Like that, but they spelled it like S T P H E. So it was thought that um, Steve was admitting to Tina's murder to gain some sort of a badass reputation, which is altogether possible because, remember, Steve is a major pussy and he can't play sports. And no one likes him. No one likes weirdo. him. He's trying to rape people. Yeah. So The fact that he's trying to rape people and then talk about stabbing the girl and no one said, hmm, that's the fucking guy. That yeah. blows my mind. But exactly. Okay. Right? Okay. So police questioned Steve several times, and although his story deviated slightly here and there, there was still never any evidence back then tying him directly to Tina's homicide. What's more, every time Steve was brought in for questioning, he was calm and cooperative. And how much weight are you going to put into a child's testimony? Please remember, we are dealing with a 15-year-old boy, you know? We are not dealing with it. And all you have to go on back then is if, unless he says, I did it, and has the knife. Like, there's no DNA. There's no crime. Right. His fingerprints weren't on anything at the time. Exactly. In a Polaroid picture of me standing over the body, there's no proof. So, Steve had some issues going forward. We'll put it that way. Uh, he went on to getting suspended from school several times. Once for being drunk again on campus. And again for screaming... F off to several of the faculty members. Because of his horrible record, Steve transferred to the village school where um, his con- it was like a continuation high school for students with multiple attendance issues and low grades, you know? Mm-hmm. His reputation as a troublemaker and a possible murderer, murderer, murderer. Well, he murdered her. Murderer. So, yeah. Well, he did murder her. It followed him to that school. By this time, Carlson was a complete meth head, according to a former village How? classmate named Aaron Is the rumor of him being the murderer going around and they're still not talking to this dude? How much weight are you going to put into a kid 
telling people when he's drunk that he did it. But when the cops ask him, he's like, no, dude, this is my alibi. And then they go to Todd Smith, his friend, and Todd's like, yeah, this is where he was. I think. I mean, I don't know. Really and the story up. keeps changing every time they talk to him. <clears throat> Very slightly. Very slightly. But then they're all on heavy drugs. I agree with you. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate, if that makes sense. <clears throat> yeah, the fact that they're all on drugs doesn't do anything for me because it gives them... And they're also 14, 15. It gives them a lack of judgment, a lack of inhibitions. And they're also children. Okay. I don't care. Also, Steve never, like, he was always asked, do you want your mom in here? And he was like, no, I'm fine. Like, I'm okay, sir. That's what you did back then. Yeah, I know, I know. So, during Steve's uh, junior year, he was arrested and uh, sent to juvenile detention for assaulting whole-ass adult drug dealer. (laughs) He was trying to steal drugs from. Bitch, give me my money. He said, no, bitch, give me your drugs and just beat his ass. So Carlson, he wasn't in for long, but he used his time in juvie to get big and ripped. He did nothing but work out and fight. That's what they do. He transformed from a tall, skinny kid to a beast. I'll post a picture of him in high school. It's sad, but he, I mean, he wasn't like gorgeous, but he's not a bad looking kid. You know, I mean. Yeah, but he's a weirdo. Absolutely. Creepy Carlson. It makes me wonder if he was on like roids or something because he got bit quick, somebody said. I don't know. Somebody said who? People in prison with him? Yeah. I I don't know. Who knows? So, as you can probably guess, Carlson never went on to finish high school. Nope. (coughs) Sorry. Back on the outside, Steve's little sister, Amy. Remember her? The twin? She was a junior at Foothills High School by now. She ran away from home numerous times, and every single time her parents would find her and make her come back home. She had confided in many people that Steve had been raping her, but no one believed her, including her parents. I believe her 110%. Okay. And again, this is 1984, 1985. Mm -hmm. 87, yeah. But no one took it that, like... (coughs) even have to utter the words no one took it as seriously back then as they do now she have always been taking seriously right but like you make these especially <clears throat> when it was a family member the allegations have always been looked on as like uh no it's your family member nowadays it's like oh shit it was a family member you know but in I mean? that like, case let her go let her go yeah let her run away yeah stop you know stop bringing her back to the place where she has to be re-traumatized every single day let her go then. You know what I mean? I just, I, I hate the excuse of, oh, it was the 80s. Oh, it was the 90s. <laughs> no, but it oh, wasn't. The, the but values were yeah, different. but the values were different. And I hate that because people just have always It was a nuclear sucked. family still. Mm-hmm. It was still the nuclear family. It was still times when like our kind of, <clears throat> even our family would have been looked down upon by society back then. Yeah, we have a blended family. we have family. a blended family. Mm-hmm. So people would have looked at us like we were just these weirdos like downturn on. Even then. So that's what I'm saying. It's just, I'm not saying, I'm not putting excuses or anything. I'm just saying. That's how it was. Back then, it was just a different value, a different time. And, you know, sexual assault wasn't looked at like it is now. It wasn't looked at as seriously like it is nowadays. It was swept under the rug. It was shameful. And that's what I'm saying. Especially if you're doing it against, and it's always, you know, the the, the step-boyfriend, the stepfather. It's always that role. God, when it's your own brother, you know? 
Yeah, it, that's always looked at as like there's no way, there's no way it could happen just because it's your family member. Nowadays, it obviously would get the attention it deserves. Hopefully, I'm just I'm sidebar there. It's Pat's hot take, but it's, it just drives me crazy that you think that you know when I was you know I was obviously alive back then. Mm-hmm. So you think it's time that I was living that a girl could claim that her father or stepfather or mom's boyfriend was raping her repeatedly, and everyone was like, "Shut up, that's your mom's Stop. boyfriend." No one's, that's yeah. not real. That's what people would do. That's, what, that's fucking insane to me. I know. That's insane. <clears throat> so, Steve left Pleasanton altogether, and he, because no one wanted him, like, even his parents. Like, he was just estranged from his family. He left Pleasanton and moved in with his grandmother in Davis, California. He continued to drink heavily and use drugs. That shit's not going to change. It's not going to change. Spoiler alert. <laughs> In 1988, 20-year-old Carlson, he's 20 years old, he met a senior in high school. Uh, Her name was um, Justine Hamilton. She was absolutely enamored with Steve. Despite (laughs) his addiction to, at this time, IV drugs. I'm assuming, I don't know what that is. Is that heroin? It's needles. IV is intervenous drugs. So you're no, I know, but is that heroin? Uh, or what is that? It can't be meth. It's heroin. <clears throat> definitely meth. Definitely heroin. He was a nar- if. By the way, if you're new here, my husband's not an addict. He isn't. He's an ex-cop. You don't have to say that. Every time I say anything, like cop I just want to make sure nobody's like, oh, why does he know all about you intravenous just said drugs? It a little while ago. No, but IV, IV drugs, intravenous drugs, anything you inject. So primarily, you know, meth, heroin. You can do others, but. You can inject meth? I didn't know that. I thought you smoked it. It's like... You could do put it in your ear. It doesn't matter. Yeah, you can do... You can eat it. You can smoke what? it. You can snort it. You can inject it. So, while this girl, um, Justine, while they were dating, Carlson went out and raped a 13-year-old girl. Yeah. Please remember, he's 20. He was arrested and charged with lewd and lascivious, is it lascivious? Lascivious. Lascivious acts on a child and sentenced to only three years in the Vacaville State So how does he only get charged with that? Oh my God. That's what I'm saying. The 80s, they sucked. Yeah. He was released in 1992. You know what Justine did? She stayed with him. It's her boo. As soon as he got out, she married him. I missed you so much. I knew you didn't do anything. Carlson. I just charged you with showing a 13-year-old wiener. Well, Carlson was required to register now as a sex offender everywhere he moved. So, shameful. On She'll June- still be in prison for now still. <laughs> oh, for that? Yeah, absolutely. On June 15th, 1993, Justine and Steve had a daughter. Uh, for privacy, I'm... Not gonna bring her into this. I'm not gonna say her name. Okay, yeah. Um, that. For a while, it seemed like he was trying his best to stay sober, but his demons, as always, they came back to haunt him. Mm-hmm. Steve started uh, to drink heavily. <laughs> and when he drank, he beat his wife. She eventually had enough of it and she was like, okay, it's time to go. Leave. So one day after one night after a bender, Steve attempted to commit suicide. I would like to add in that I don't know about you, but it seems like he's struggling with something. Yeah, and I don't commit. Is it guilt? Is it guilt? 
Is it, what is it? Is it, is she, is Tina haunting him? I don't think she is. I think he's just that fucking troubled. That's insane. I think, I think, I think, I think he's just that fucking Because nuts. you don't see like the Ted Bundy's off trying to kill themselves after a murder. You know what I mean? Yeah, you but he wasn't that. like and that. And I'm not he saying he's evil. Remorseful. I don't know if he was so much as evil. I think he was like <clears throat> literally insane. Possibly. Like, that's Wait, what I was saying earlier with, with, the, the, with the drugs and nuts. alcohol. He's always trying to, a lot of people that are like that, that don't get the mental health they need, they, they resort to drug and alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what can calm the voices or can control everything down. I think he didn't learn that until he was older. And I, th- I do think Tina's murder um, played a part in it because he didn't commit more murders. So if you remember before Tina's murder, <clears throat> he was, he had just tried meth. And, you know? That's what I'm saying. But it was after her murder that he was, like, just never sober. Yeah. Ever. I think, that's what I'm saying, is I think it's just this weird Thank thing. Is right. like, nothing could contain the demons. He was escalating the drugs. He killed her thinking, hey, that'll help the demons. Whatever. Right? Yeah. That was too much. Went too far. Made the demon, made more demons, and then gave him guilt. So then he was just... I don't, that's just a random theory of mine. I don't know. I think it's anyone's guess, so... <clears throat> Anyways, after his suicide attempt, he received medical treatment before he was released. Nothing changed for Steve, though. <laughs> in 1996, Steve started a relationship with 18-year-old Sarah Whitmire. In fact, he met Sarah when she was way younger, but apparently he waited till she was of age to pursue He's her. A registered sex offender. He has to. Which I'm not too sure I believe. I just think he said that but well he has to that's what i'm saying right he has to say that so by law he doesn't break his sex offender bullshit pedophile yeah i know i mean i don't i don't believe that i mean why have a moral compass now of all times but sarah would later say that one time steve brought her back to his hometown of pleasanton to kind of show her his old stomping grounds and for some reason he made a point to bring her to this weird drainage ditch where the tube crossed underneath the freeway does that sound familiar yeah she was so confused at the time as to why you know that area seems so important to him but it's important i mean he takes her there it's obviously like a cool spot for some reason or something he doesn't tell her why so she's like that's just really weird did you drink with your buddies there or something i don't know you know what i mean (laughs) so weird and it's not her fault she doesn't know (laughs) no it's not her fault for sure in 1997, Sarah gave birth to their son. Now he has two kids, if you're counting. Two days after she had the baby, Steve disappeared to go on a drug binge, which she thought was a drug binge, and I'm sure she was right. She knows him. Yeah, well, I mean, he can't do the responsibility, so he panics. And- when he returned to their apartment, he was high on heroin. Mm. He also had meth on his person because a baggie of it fell out onto their kitchen floor. She called the police, and it was during that arrest that Steve was asked to submit a DNA sample for input into the new CODA system. That DNA sample would eventually be the key to cracking the Tina Fails case. Because when he was but originally arrested, the CODA system wasn't live. It wasn't live yet. So now they had this re- registered sex offender felon. Yes. All these things, <clears throat> and they got him for drugs. They're like, hey, we need to get you in the system. Science is... Chef kiss. Oh, it's Beautiful. also smart it's for whoever arrested him and said. I love when science 
just puts the pieces together. It just makes my heart so happy. But it's also kudos to whatever that police department was that CODIS was new. And they're like, hey, this dude is a registered sex offender, a felon, a, a, a rumored murderer. Let's go ahead and get his fucking DNA on the system. Yep. And also kudos to Dana Savage, the pregnant woman detective that was like... Fuck it, let's run this shit. You know what? Well, let's run this purse and see if we can find For something. two decades, no dude could handle this. Let me handle it. And she solved the crime. <laughs> Leave well, it to a pregnant mama. <laughs> sadly, sadly, it's not even that. Sadly, most places, like most of those cold cases in small towns, if they're kept in a small town, they're thrown in, a, in, in an evidence locker or something, and no one revisits them. Yeah, ever. And after a certain period of time, they might go to a bigger or different place. So mm-hmm. the fact that someone's assigned to cold cases in a town. It's rare. Even in major cities, cold case divisions, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, they're not very large. Because there's not a lot of time invested in something that happened 30 years ago. Right. Okay, guys. So, Drew fails. Uh, oh, did I talk about... Oh, no, I didn't talk about this. Let me go back. So, in 1990, Sarah... 1997, Sarah gave birth to their son. He has a son now. Two Is this days the CODIS thing? After... Oh, yeah. You did that. talk about that, but if you have something after, then they ended up well, putting just, just put that back. But in the meantime, Carlson spent the next 10 years in and out of jail. He was released from his final stint in prison on a domestic violence charge in 2008. But he wound up back in prison for failing to register as a sex offender when he moved. <laughs> so he was in jail. When they discovered that his DNA DNA was at the oh, crime scene. Good. <clears throat> so, in the meantime, before we get to his arrest and what led up to it, let's talk about Drew and Shirley for just a little bit. So, Drew Fails, um, Tina's half-brother. He was now an adult and married. And he usually, every year on the anniversary of his sister's death, he spent it Googling Tina's name to see what new results popped up. Right. In 2011, it was no different. However, this was the first year that his wife said something about it. She was like, you know what? You need to stop doing this. You get depressed. You start getting quiet. It burns you out. But he explained to his wife that he needed to do this. Yeah, that's how he deals with it. Yeah, that's how he deals with it. It's just how he copes. Shirley, having never recovered from her daughter's death and the coldness of the case had gone on to remarry a very nice man named Ron Orozco. So she was not Shirley Orozco. Okay. Shirley's health, unfortunately, had not been the best. I'm sure the grueling years of not knowing what happened to your daughter had taken a deep toll. Yeah, we don't know if there was booze or drugs or anything used to help deal with that. To help cope. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But um, she she was in and out of mental institutions as well. No, I'm mean, sure it broke her. That's what I'm saying. But I just, I don't know. We also don't yeah. know if she was using substances to cope with the drugs. or and they could have, I'm saying that could have Absolutely. led to her poor health. So little did they both know, Drew and Shirley, that investigators were finally about to get the guy responsible for taking Tina's life. And I'm excited for them because. Yeah. Sure. God, it's been two decades. Almost you know? three decades. Yeah, almost three decades at this point. So, on July 26, 2011, two detectives, um, Batten Knox, traveled to Santa Cruz where Steve Carlson was serving time for failing to register as a sex offender, like I said. Their goal was to obtain a sample of Steve's DNA voluntarily. <clears throat> they needed to be able to testify in court 
that, you know, they obtained a sample from the suspect. Oh, they wanted a chain of custody. Yeah. Chain of custody. They wanted a so chain of custody. Defense couldn't, and the reason they do that is defense couldn't argue that some small podunk town right. over here that arrested Steve, that took a sample, they corrupted it. This is like the people charging, the people doing everything handled it. So that's why they did it. Carlson, he didn't know why he was there. So <laughs> he's like, whatever. Yeah. Because he was called from jail to like go and talk to these cops and he's in for lots of shit. So it doesn't, he has he's on no his, like, fifth term. Yeah. I don't know how he keeps getting let back out. Uh, Carlson began the initial interview in the interrogation room, full of energy, ready to talk, not knowing why he was summoned to speak with investigators in the first place. 45 minutes of Carlson whining about his sad life ensued. He's like, I had such a hard childhood, da, 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 which I know he did, but well. But then the detectives asked about Tina, and his demeanor completely changed. He, like, turned green. He acted like he was about to throw up. He got quiet. Yeah. He's like, fuck, I know um, this is for her. <laughs> as, de- yeah, as detectives probed. Um, he's not sober. He's not yeah, as he's as he was sober. Back then. He can deal with things. Steve's answers, they got much shorter. He was a lot less chatty. <laughs> yeah, he's sober. He's like, fuck me. They know <gasps> so Steve insisted he didn't know anything more about the case than what he had previously told investigators years ago. He gave that, I've given multiple statements. statements. I don't, I've been questioned multiple times. I've been questioned so many times. It's the yeah. same thing. Finally, Bat. Uh, Detective Bat asked Carlson if he would willingly submit a DNA sample, even though Bat had come prepared with a warrant. You always do. <laughs> if you have the warrant, you ask. Yeah. Was, Carlson did not want to comply at first, but he eventually gave in. Steve swabbed the inside of his own cheek and handed the swab over to Detective Bat. The sample was then sent to the FBI lab in Virginia. On August 28th, 2011, FBI forensic examiner uh, compared Steve's newly submitted DMA, DMA, DNA to that of the blood found on Tina Fale's purse. He determined, get this, that there was a 1 in 15 quadrillion chance that this DNA did not belong to Steve Carlson. Yeah, so one in 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
pulled it behind Carlson's back. They informed Carlson, and I'm these words gave me chills. They informed him that he was under arrest for the murder of Tina Fails. Can you imagine how good it felt to say that? That's why they were. That's why they did it in such a dramatic fashion. Oh, I would too. They wanted to put a show on. Like I would, you have, I would have reporters. I would have everything. Yeah. Oh my god. Carlson only said. Carlson said, "Okay." That's all he said. Okay. Well, he knew yeah, they him. He knew. He knew something was off. They so, come to him when he's about to get released from prison. Thirty years after he murdered his girl, yeah, he's like, and he they're knew. like, "Hey, he knew about that murder," and he's like. The detectives drove him back to the Santa Rita jail in Dublin, which is right near Pleasanton. Now came the cherry on top. Detectives Bratt and Knox made the drive to Pleasanton to inform Tina's mother, Sherry Roscoe, of their arrest. When she first saw the detectives pull up, she walked outside and she said, Did you find them? They both smiled. And she knew, like, they found them. And she started crying immediately. Oh, I tried shit. I tried to look for Drew's initial reaction because he was so involved. Like, he, he stayed in touch with police, you know? It's almost one of those things and, that's um, how he copes. And, then like, yeah. when it actually ends, like, then you have to do I, it. I couldn't find. Um, he Drew is, he was so involved. He's, from what I can tell, Drew's just, like, a stand-up guy. And just, God bless him. He's just salt him. of the earth. Good for him. Um, but I, I couldn't find, like, his initial reaction to Carlson's arrest. I'm sure it was wonderful. I can, I'm can. i just going to venture out on a limb and say he was relieved, right? <laughs> Safe. <clears throat> well, it, I don't know. Because for most families, that would be where you deal with a lot of the emotion. I, it's closure. It's, it's closure. It's finally over. I do, I do want to go on to say that Drew spent a lot of years terrified that her killer would come after him. Yeah, of course. And he and he had put numerous 911 calls in saying he heard a sound outside and stuff when he was little. And that just it breaks my heart. And he's, he's a good brother. He, he, he did good, Drew. He did good. Anyways, let's move on. So, before the trial. Um, Carlson denied any involvement, of course. Before his trial, during his many interviews, and yeah. he gave numerous interviews. One of Carlson's public defenders, Andrea Brown, she argued successfully that because Steve was a child at the time of the crime, that the case needed to abide by juvenile court protocol. For the first time ever, that was allowed. He was 43. Yeah. No, I get that. I wish... That you could see Steve Carlson. He is tatted, which you're tatted, but, and I mean, no, that's fine. I'm not on trial for murder. But with a history he, of is, he has no teeth in his freaking head. Meth. He is tatted everywhere. He's bald. Meth. He is just scary looking. Meth. Yeah. Anyways, he's a 43 year old scary looking man. If you've never seen a person that's used meth for years, they don't look like humans. So, her motion was granted, and his trial was to abide by juvenile court protocol. Okay. Tanya Carlson, remember Steve's older sister? Yeah, the one that said he had ADD. She wasn't super impressed with Carlson's defense team, and she wanted a fair trial for her little brother. Of course. So she uh, paid for a lawyer named Cameron Bowman to take over Steve's representation. In May of 2012, Carlson formally entered a plea of not guilty. 
I hate to say this, this broke my heart, but the day before Steve's trial was set to begin, Shirley fails, now Shirley Orozco, she died of a sudden heart attack. She was 66 years old. Which is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, but it makes sense. It goes, it, well, it goes back to that old adage of, not old, but you know, your mental health and your physical health are so combined. Mm-hmm. She suffered such trauma and stress, both physically and mentally, but her mind kept her body alive literally until they found the killer. And, and probably she, the guilt she felt over the years. But that's when so, everything yeah. hit her and it literally mm-hmm. killed her. Like, I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but, you know. Oh, yeah, we don't know. It finally caught up, and there was closure. And, you know, for some people, closure is that. But some for her, the closure is her body can finally deal with the shock or whatever it was took its toll on her. Yeah, she. I think she was finally allowed to rest. Like, it's almost like she knew yeah, well, well, it's the like outcome. Her mind and her body and her soul said, okay, now you can rest. Now yeah. you can relax. So, in 2014, the... The trial ended, and I'm just going to skip over the trial because that is a whole other aspect. Um, I definitely will recommend a book that you read in the show notes, and it goes into more of the details of the trial, the interviews, uh, I mean, the testimonies. They were fascinating. Please read the book. It's called A Murder in Pleasanton, and I'll link it below. So, in 2014, the trial ended and Carlson was sentenced to 26 years to life in prison for first-degree murder. That's a good sentence because that's just saying <clears throat> people hear 26 years to life. And it's like That means minimum of 26 years, maximum of he dies. In 2017, the courts actually reduced his sentence to 10 years for second-degree murder when his lawyer was able to successfully prove that Steve did not premeditate Tina's murder. That means Steve is going to be out by 2027. I understand why they allowed that, because there was no proof of premeditation. (laughs) I don't. I think that's bullshit. I think that is the cheapest bullshit I've ever heard. He is a repeat-ass offender. I know, I I know, I know. I have seen people rob grocery stores back to back to back and as repeat offenders get life in prison. It makes no sense. I know, but by the law, it was an appeals court. So you can't add to it from there. You can bring it down. It was probably through an appeals court. They appealed saying that it was never proven that it was premeditation, which automatically makes it second degree. Mm. I'm angered. I'm triggered. No, I get it. I get it. (laughs) The problem is, once it's sentenced, you can only reduce. You can't go forward. You know what I mean? So, in 2020, Steve wrote a letter to Tina's family. He did admit his guilt. It offered little comfort, though. I'm going to read just a few snippets of the letter. I'm not going to read the whole thing because I really don't care to give him a voice. He said, and this is a quote, I want you and your family to know you did absolutely nothing to deserve what I did to you. I remember being full of rage at the way all my classmates were laughing at me and the damage my parents' room was in, I guess because he had the party, and how my dad was going to whip up on me after they found out about the party I threw, he wrote. Everything happened so fast. I remember going to the kitchen and grabbed a butcher knife. I walked across the street and into the field at the goalie, and that's 
where at the time was Tina Fales. I don't remember the stab in motions, Carlson wrote in one letter. I just remember standing over her bloody body holding the knife. That is one of the most aggravating and worst kinds of confessions I've ever heard. <coughs> because he eventually takes all blame off of himself. He's like, yeah, I did it. But I was horribly bullied, f- bullied from my friends. And my dad was going to whip my ass as soon as he came home. So I was just so upset because I knew what torture I was going to endure. That's exactly what he fucking said. That's how many times the killers do that shit. They're like, I'm going to confess and say sorry to you because I fucking did this horrible thing. But it's not my fault. Here's a list of everybody else that's at fault too because they treated me horribly. Yeah. <clears throat> Drew Fails told the Chronicle that it's nice knowing that he's admitting it. It's 100% him. That part makes me feel better to get confirmation. But it doesn't resolve anything. It's just too little too late. He could have done that in 1985 <clears throat> when he killed her. And the family could have moved on and not spent 30 years of their life. I'd also... I do want to go back. Do you remember the all the missing girls? Yeah, and there's the like murdered two or three girls? more, wasn't there? Um, I'd like to mention that the murders of Kelly Jean Poppleton... And Eileen Mischelhoff have never been solved. Steve, this is key. Steve, however, did work at the restaurant called Froster's Freeze. That Eileen Mischelhoff was last seen alive walking past the day that she disappeared. But he has never been tied to her case. So. The only thing that tied him to Tina's case was a tiny Frickin' piece of blood that landed on something. 30 years later was found. I would like to end this story with an open letter submitted by Tina's classmate, Rachel Scarlett, to the author of the book, um, Murder in Pleasanton, that I was telling you guys about, and I'll link it below. Rachel was one of the young girls who was bullying Tina. She threw rocks at her the day that she was murdered, and she spent three decades living with the guilt that her actions caused. Rachel wrote, I am truly ashamed about what I can tell you regarding my interactions with Tina. It is one of the few things I have done in my life I truly and sincerely regret. I've shared this experience with many people, but especially younger generations in hopes that they can learn a valuable lesson about teasing other kids and how wrong it is. Earlier, the day Tina was stabbed to death, myself and one of my best friends teased her while walking back from lunch. I really had no interaction with Tina except for this horrible day. My friend lived on the same street as Tina and did not like her one bit. Why, I'm not sure. We threw rocks at her and called her Tuna, as we did. We found out, I believe, the next day at school, and what we did began to sink in. We were questioned by police and told them everything we knew. I am ashamed that I was part of making Tina's last day on earth a terrible one, and I hope this helps you in some way to not do the same. So, and that is why we do not bully And in this day and age, I'm sorry, I'm crying. We have the internet and bullying is oh so much easier. Oh, it's every little 
fucking when you don't have phone. to look into a person's eyes. So don't do it, guys. It's a waste of your energy. Spend that energy doing something positive and lifting up your fellow human. No. And I'll, I'll caveat on that saying because it's the little pussies at home. Mm-hmm. They sit behind their telephone or their computer and talk shit because it doesn't do anything to them but makes them fucking feel like big men or big women. No that it hurts so many other people. But it's not the days where you do have to do that shit to someone's face. If you can you, punch them in the mouth. I mean, take it from Rachel, who actually was a bully, and she took part. And, and I'm and Rachel, God bless you. You know, and she was but unrelated she to took the part in really hurting Tina the last she day did. of her life. You she never did. know what y'all are dealing with. You never know who you're talking shit about. Stop, guys. Just stop. Be good to each other. And, you, and that's a good point because for everybody that listens to this show, you've listened to all the things about Columbine and Virginia Tech and all these other stories. It's, it's, why you know why be a bully? Just stop. I was an stop. asshole when I was younger. Absolutely. You were. I was an asshole. But you were an also, people were also assholes to you when you were even younger. And let's stop the cycle. The cycle can end now. We need to love each other. Lift up your fellow human. None of us are getting out of this alive. Maybe I'm a mom. Yeah. And I'm trying to mother all of y'all. But <laughs> she does. I can't stop her. But, I promise. <laughs> but just stop. Stop all this. We're all different. Just love each other. That doesn't mean we all have to be in love with each other. No, but, but you can be kind to each other. Be and do kind nice by to each other. other. Not judge each other by whatever you do. So I do want to end this by saying, if you or someone you know is a victim of bullying, please reach out and don't just take it alone. Visit you're not school. alone. You're not alone. Um, please visit stopbullying.gov. Stopbullying.gov for numerous resources. If you're not comfortable talking to someone, you can also do a cool thing, text to chat. It's on hotlines if you're too scared to talk. Those may be easier for you. And that, if that's the case, you can visit um, crisistextline.org. And also just message us, DM us on Instagram, and we can hook you up with some resources. Law enforcement. And this is why we always end every episode with be good to each other. 